Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Uh, check us out at publishersweekly.com slash comics. Uh, uh, greetings from New York Comic Con. This time we're uh, podcasting from the belly of the beast. Uh, we're somewhere in the lower bowels of the Javits Convention Center, but I'm fortunate to be here right after the panel uh, with the uh, co-founder, uh, co-founder of uh, Comixology, John Roberts, uh, and comics creator, uh, comics writer, uh, Joshua Hale Falkoff, um, uh, author of um, Elks Run, as I recall, and most recently, <laughs> most recently The Bunker, um, which if, uh, uh, one of the things I want to talk to them about is Comixology Submit, uh, Comixology's uh, self-publishing program. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, this is where the bunker started. It did. Yeah, yeah. We, we started as uh, we started as a digital comic. Um, it was a book that we pitched. Uh, we pitched around to a bunch of publishers, mm-hmm. and the the kind of the the thing that sort of sent us on our path was uh, when I had a, a very big publisher tell us that the book was quote unquote too smart for the market <laughs> and uh, like I can guarantee you that I am not smarter than the average reader in comics I'm pretty sure um, and you know and I think that comics readers are literally the best audience in the world like they're really smart they're people who actually yeah. care about books and characters and you can do complex cool stuff it, it was so offensive to, to Joe Infernari, my, my artist and co-creator, and I, that we said, you know what, we're going to go find a way to do this on our own. Um, and it just sort of timed out that Submit was just getting going. Um, and it was a way for us to just get our book in front of an audience. Like, it was our way for us to show the world that, you know, like, we think we can build something. Um, and in the process of doing that, like, we've had more success than I could, you know, even imagine with the book. Like, it's been so wonderful. Um, and that audience, and as we, we moved into print, so we're, we're actually in print yeah. now from Oni that's Press. Right, with Oni. Mm-hmm. And, and the transition, you know, what, what I've seen that's been amazing is how many of those people from who read it digitally have followed us into print. Mm-hmm. Like, what Comixology has done is really they've grown the market, mm-hmm. and they've shown that there's yeah. a world for that. Yeah. One, one of the things that I liked about uh, when you guys did the print version of The Bunker is that Joe actually redrew Mm -hmm. some of the pages Mm -hmm. like a madman Mm -hmm. uh, because he wanted the print experience to be unique from the digital experience. Actually, John, could could you give us a little background on Comixology Submit and, I mean, what it's supposed to do? Well, you know, the the whole idea behind Comixology Submit is that we wanted to create basically a portal where independent creators like Mm -hmm. Josh and and small publishers could come and they could uh, submit their content onto Comixology uh, very easily and, and basically get their content onto the Comixology platform uh, so anyone else can, you know, so everyone on the platform could actually buy it. Uh, and so, you know, we, we built this thing, we, you know, we wanted, we, our tenant was like, we have to make sure that this is a great experience for the creator, a great experience for the consumer, and a great experience for us. And, you know, we, we had some stumbling blocks. Like, you know, we tried doing this before, and what we produced was really bad. So we decided, you know what, we're not going to put this out. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get rid of it. We're going to start over from scratch, and we're going to build something that really helps, really, like, gets to the core of what it is that we need it to be. And uh, it's been highly successful. You know, like, you know, Josh's, uh, you know, The Bunker was, like, our, our top-grossing book of 2013, wow. mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, we're 
currently for 2014, we're, we're number three in content uh, dis, you know, uh, distributed. We're number five in... Because it's a global distribution global, platform. Global distribution, I mean, if you, yes. Once you're in Comixology Submit, your comic is available around the world. Day one. Yeah. Day one. Mm -hmm. you, anywhere, in, anywhere in the world can buy your comic. Uh, there's no, you're not limited to the, your, your zip code, you're not limited to the, the local shops that you're using consignment for. It's like on day one, anyone in the world can buy it, and anyone that you can reach via social media can then buy it. And, and can you just give us some of the basics, uh, basic terms? I mean, how, how are writers and artists paid? And yeah, so it's a, it's a five-year non-exclusive agreement, mm -hmm. uh, which mm -hmm. means that you can go wherever you want. Uh, it is, we... We have no rights. We take no rights. Mm -hmm. um, you get paid uh, quarterly net 45. We recently announced that, uh, thanks to our acquisition from Amazon, that anyone mm -hmm. who gets paid by electric fund, uh, EFT electric fund transfer will be paid regardless of how much money they make. We, previously, we had a $100 threshold for being mm -hmm. paid. Uh, that's now gone away. Um, you, you know, Basically, you go to the site. You create an account or you log in, you add all your, your publishing entity, your series information, your individual comic information, upload a PDF file, submit it, and then it gets reviewed. If there are any issues, we push back about what the issues are. You know, we have a lot of problems with artifacting and pixelation. Uh, Comic Sans is a huge issue. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you, you don't yeah. see the major publishers using Comic Sans it, or anybody else really. Hopefully exactly. not. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, just uh, your grandma. Your yeah, grandma yeah, uses yeah. Uh, Comic Sans. Um, Josh, I am curious. I mean, maybe you could talk a little. Well, first, tell people about the bunker because it's a really great story. Sure. It's really kind of. I mean, it's a little. It's a great kind of narrative hook with these Thank these you. college friends they're all of a sudden they a, really make an amazing they, discovery they do they so it's about a group of friends who uh, receive letters from their future selves yeah <laughs> explaining to them that they're going to cause the apocalypse yes. <laughs> so the the what happens is is each of them have to make a decision are they going to walk away from everything that they've worked so hard for all their hopes and dreams in order to theoretically save the world or are they all going to be selfish jerks and doom us all and I'm going to give you a spoiler. Oh. It's the second one. They're okay. Very, very um, yeah, so it's, it's like, it's a book that when we started it, you know, sci-fi sci -fi was still sort of outside what was going mm -hmm. on and people were scared to do something different. And especially, you know, it's sort of uh, like literary sci-fi. Like it's very much, it's a novel. It's very dense. It's, there's, you know, not only do you have the five main characters, but you have their future selves and what's going yeah, to happen yeah. to them. Mm -hmm. So you're charting a lot of stuff. And it's something that you can only do in comics. It's mm -hmm. the kind of story that really, in comics, it thrives and it grows. And it's, it's a very different experience than any other medium. So getting to do it and again and getting to, to put it in comics form was so important to us because it's, it's a way for us to tell this story. And thanks to the success, thanks to the success of um, how we launched and how we moved it on, like we're going to be able to do this book for as long as we want. You know? now, now, one of the things, that, I mean, obviously we're in a, a self-publishing moment, uh, and, and and we're also experiencing, and I because I read about traditional publishing mm -hmm. as well, uh, a sort of a, a backlash. You know, I mean, you hear from traditional publishers that oh, you know, why self-publishers? Oh, you have to. There's so much work to do. Uh, you know, who's going to do your marketing? I mean, as a creator who's worked 
uh, in the you know in the traditional side, right. you know, you're pro and you're self-publishing. I mean, what can you tell uh, you know a, a young creator who's trying to decide, you know, well, should I do this or should I right. just wait around and get rejected? I mean, you know, from bigger publishers. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is. It's it, there's sort of a catch twenty two too. Like mm -hmm. when you when you get a publisher, a publisher helps. They really yeah. do. Mm -hmm. Like you get editorial support mm -hmm. and you get marketing support. Like you get all that stuff, mm -hmm. but it's not going to be as good as if you do it yourself, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, nobody cares about what you do as much as you do, right? Like, you you will always be more passionate about your own work yeah. because it's your life. It's your blood. It's the thing that's in you. Like, I bleed my books. Um, and it's one of those things that it became, you know, it became a very conscious decision after the experience with Bunker that, you know, I'm putting all my energy towards myself and my own books, yeah. like putting it towards my creator-owned work because at the end of the day, I put the same in whether I own the book or not, right? Whether I own the mm -hmm. material or not. So I have to own it because if it's going to be the same work, I need the same benefit. Um, but I do think, you know, it's also, it's, it's peculiar to the person. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's not easy. Yeah. Like when, when we first launched the book, my full-time job was marketing the book. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. I was writing all of, you know, the five other books I was writing at night because I spent all day, every day doing the marketing and the promotion right. and just trying to get the books into people's hands. Mm -hmm. um, but, again, like, when work is good, it finds mm -hmm. an audience. I mean, during know? the panel, you, you talked about how, you know, you were promoting your, you know, mm -hmm. fans to go to your site to buy it. <laughs> so, uh, but you had an interesting sales breakdown. I right. mean, I mean, obviously, we, Comixology is the yeah, no, place we, to go to just buy digital you know, comics. We, we had that, you know, you hear on the, you hear from some people, yeah. as Fox <laughs> News would say, um, some people will tell you that, you know, everyone's all about the, everyone's all about DRM free and we really want to have, you know, I want a PDF file and I don't want you to know that I have it. So we, we really made an effort. Like, mm -hmm. so we, we had, we released it in two formats. We released it, or three formats. We did uh, PDF, CBR, and then on Comixology. Mm -hmm. And when we did all of our promotion and all our marketing, it was all geared towards the site. The site mm -hmm. had three buttons and you picked the button that you wanted. Yeah. So it was, it was democratic like yeah. it really was and what we found was we were 20 to 1 comicsology versus mm -hmm. our files yeah mm -hmm. you know and it mm -hmm. got to a point where we eventually like by the third by the third digital chapter we were having the, con the conversation of like is it even worth doing this like why not just if we can just have a single stream and eventually we mm -hmm. were really just promoting it towards yeah. comicsology because it was worth it well, one of the things I was impressed with uh, during the panel was hearing about, um, well, really, I guess you do give some editorial guidance. I was wondering whether, I mean, if people are uploading files, obviously it's a, it's a semi-self-service mm -hmm. setup. But um, uh, one of the other uh, artists that were on the panel, um, uh, the, the, the couple that does the yeah, agency, yeah, yeah. yeah they. Uh, so is that typical, or I mean, or if you see a, a comic that maybe has problems, because obviously there's many that you reject. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I'd love to ask you. I wrote a story at one time. I know that David told me that they, you had a huge backlog. Yeah. So yeah. I'd love to hear how do you help individual artists? Do you give them editorial direction and? Yeah, you know, so you know. What's the wait time? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's um, as I, as I said, if you were to use Adobe Acrobat Pro, uh, by default, the settings for TIFF just compresses the hell out of the images, mm -hmm. and you can't use it. Yeah. You've actually produced a PDF file that we cannot use. Yeah. And so, you know, things like artifacting, pixelation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, taking uh, an eight and a half by eleven document and just sticking your your comic book page in the middle of it. You know, which produces a huge white border yeah. around it. I mean, these are all common issues uh, that we have to deal with. And you know, the goal of Comicsology Submit is not to simply take 
whatever you give us and put it up. It's to make sure that what you're giving us is the best file that you can possibly give us because you know we are being trusted with your property. We're being trusted with your comic. We want to make sure that when people buy it, that it's the best experience for you, the creator. It's the best experience for the consumer, and it's the best experience for us. And so by simply saying that we're just going to take this heavily pixelated or, or heavily artifacted book and put it up doesn't achieve any of that. So, you know, we push back. We, you know, we say, hey, look, you've got artifacting and pixelation. Here's how you fix it. Hey, you're using Comic Sans. Don't do that. <laughs> yes. uh, hey, you're, you know, you've got white borders. Or, or hey, you're, you know, your, your page sizes are all different sizes. You know, it's like, you know, we push back so that, you know, we can... Because ultimately, you're sitting next to, like, major publishers. Your yeah. content is, you know, side-by-side side with, with major comics. Like, we want to make sure that you stand out as much as they do. Uh, one of the things that people don't understand is that, you know, on our site, most of the time, the cover for your book is going to be seen as a tiny thumbnail. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things drop out. You know, a lot of things disappear when you shrink it down that size. So it's like these are the things that you have to think about. So we push back and we mm -hmm. say, hey, we have some just suggestions on how to improve your book so that you can, you know, stand a chance or, or have a better chance of, of selling on our site. Good. And the, the thing that, like, having just now that I know everybody at Comixology and spending time with everyone and seeing how hard they work, like, the, the fact is, like, these guys love comics. Yeah. Like, they love mm -hmm. this medium. And, you know, I don't know whether it's... I don't know how active a part it is of your day-to-day -day thought mm -hmm. process, but, like, they are working on ways to expand the audience mm -hmm. yeah. in a way that nobody else is. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, they're growing They're growing, and they're providing access to comics in a way that has never been available before. Not yeah. since the newsstand. Yeah. Yeah. And even at the newsstand, it was unreliable, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I remember being a kid, and you could never read the X-Men. <laughs> yeah. You'd miss yes. an issue, and then suddenly everyone would be, you know, reincarnated as different people. It's yeah. very confusing. Um, but, like, the, the commitment that they show to, to comics and to quality is really... You know, I think part of why they've dominated the market. Yeah. And I think it's a lot of why they're going to continue to succeed. Like, they genuinely love what they do. Yeah. I mean, that, that's very well said. I mean, well, there, there were a number of testimonials to, to Comixology uh, from the panel earlier yes. today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just a couple more questions. Um, when I first wrote a story about uh, Comixology, you you had like 150 titles. So, so, what do we have now? So, we have released over 2,000 books. Mm -hmm. uh, we've released as a, as a group, Comixology has, I mean, Submit has released, uh, I think only Marvel and DC beat us as yeah. far as content being mm -hmm. released. Uh, we have the most diverse genres, you know, the mm -hmm. most diverse. If you're looking for a comic, Submit probably has it because we go, we run the gamut of sci-fi, zombie, mm -hmm. fantasy. Um, we, even have, we even have a series of manga comics that teach you how to do things like math. The Manga Guide to mm -hmm. Linear Algebra, which will be coming out okay. in a couple weeks. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, the brainier otaku. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think the, the Manga Guide for uh, Computer Programming is an amazing story. Uh -huh. um, yeah. But, I mean, it's like, yeah, we, we don't, you know, we, we, Comixology Submit offers an opportunity for your off-the-wall comic that you think no one will like. You know, we have a, you know, I mean, like, like Josh said, no one was really interested in the bunker. We said, bring it to us. Yeah. We want this. Yeah. You know, we want to be able to show people what this is and, and get them excited about it and, and, and 
you know, and it worked. It worked. I mean, you know, look at all the success that you've had yeah. with yeah. your book. Ooh. And is and the wait time? I mean, um, is there a, uh, is there an issue with that now? I know mean, it was a backlog at there, one point. There, yes, uh, you know, imperfect PDF files continue to be a problem. Uh, you know, the average wait time is is uh, from submission to being on the platform is about six to eight weeks. If there are problems with your PDF yeah. file, that's going to push it back a little. We recently updated our FAQ on submit so mm-hmm. that you. Uh, to help you, and we list out like the most common issues. So you can go to our our FAQ. You can look at the most common issues, and if you can tackle those issues before you submit, it's going to make the process so much faster. Uh, we've you know increased the amount of people looking at the books. We've increased. We've uh, updated the software to better handle it so that we can get through the the backlog faster. Uh, we have a plan in place to to get the wait time down to you know four weeks. Um, four to six weeks depending on you know how quickly we can get it on I mean this is very important to us um, and you know one of the things that we do that you know other people don't is that we put your books up on on a Wednesday schedule so mm-hmm. that they're going up at the same time as every all the other yeah. new comics mm-hmm. so when people are coming to look at the new comics on Wednesday they're going to see your comics sitting right next to all the other ones all right uh, well uh, look I'm a big fan uh, <laughs> I this is another aspect of the, the moment now, the self-publishing moment. I think it's transforming publishing and comics. We're in a new golden age of comics. So, look, thanks to both of you for uh, being on More to Come. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, hi, this is Heidi McDonald for PW's More to Come, the comics podcast, uh, Publishers Weekly. And I'm here with Grid Scott. Uh, I did say that right, yeah, didn't I? Right. Wow, amazing. Okay, uh, who's the writer of Transformers Windblade, uh, and now some new projects unannounced, but, uh, you know, she's really making a name for herself, even if it is hard to pronounce um, and spell. But we're learning very rapidly how to spell her name. Uh, now, Margaret, uh, you the trade is coming out now, right? And this is Windblade, the new female Transformer, correct? Yes, yeah, the trade just came out last week. Um, it collects the first story arc of Transformers Windblade and is a complete miniseries designed to introduce new readers to the brand. Right, so. right. Um, but she was also a character that was fan-created, is that correct? Yes, um, in celebration of the 30th anniversary, Transformers decided to let the fans decide what their next character should be, and they chose Windblade, who's a female Autobot jet. So our stories all focus around her as she first comes to Cybertron and with her best friend Chromia. And um, they get involved with Starscream, and because of Starscream, there's a lot of duplicitous, murderous <laughs> intent ensues. Right, right. Now, you got a little bit of attention probably a couple of years ago because you sent out an open letter that was about writing Transformers, and but you pointed out that you didn't think that a lot of women in comics got attention when they wrote genre material and I think you got a lot of attention for that how did that all play out that actually which I sent it to the beat so yes that's right thank you beat uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're very gracious yeah um but yeah I feel like there is a uh there is a tendency to give praise to women in the industry who work on certain kinds of books right you know and there are certain companies for example Every IDW panel I've been on for the last three years has been at least half women. But it's not a company that gets known as like a female-friendly place or a place where you can look to, you know, if you're like looking for Mm -hmm. properties geared towards that. Right. We really are. And so it's getting better. 
But it's important to know that, you know, women can write more than just intensive uh, life story pieces or, or... Or even, you know, just to be honest, things like My Little Pony. You exactly. Know, which is kind yeah. of where there's there's a little bit of a... Uh, I think there's sometimes a stereotype. but And, I, I, you know, I'll be honest. It's like, I've, I've said this many times, Transformers is not a thing, uh, even as a girl who liked guy stuff, that ever really caught my attention. And uh, But I know you've been a Transformers fan, like, right in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. And this is definitely... Transformers Windblade is designed to really change what you think about Transformers. It's not a war book. It's a mystery book. It's got a lot of heart. And... I think people think because they're robots, they don't have a lot of personality, but they really do. Oh, and, yeah. And yeah, yeah. My artist, Sarah Stone, just does a super good job of really pushing that personality. Yeah. Now, you also write animation, uh, correct? Now, which, which to me is like, like both comics and animation seem very hard to break into. Um, but you broke into animation first, or? Yes, yeah. I broke into animation first with Transformers Prime. Um, and now I do a lot of work for Hasbro. I'm also starting to write on some Marvel properties, so um, on the cartoon side. Right. And it's once you sort of get in and prove that you can do it, it's really good. It's right. a really fun thing. Did you have to, like, send in a lot of samples? Or, I mean, I think probably that process of breaking into animation is very little, oh, very opaque to our audience. I mean... That's true. And I actually... Um, I actually got in because I, I went to school to write animation, and I worked for the production as an assistant and worked my uh, way up through there. But there are a number of animation companies like um, Nickelodeon and Disney who offer uh, annual contests where if you win it, you will actually be employed by the company for a year right, based right. off your writing samples. And I know people have done them. They're very great opportunities, especially if you're not local to Los Angeles, to really get your foot in the door. Right. Now, what's what's next for you? I mean, uh, you know, Windblade definitely was a very, you know, high-profile project in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, what's, what's, what's next, comics-wise? Well, comics-wise, we're coming back um, in a large crossover event called Transformers Combiner Wars, <laughs> which is amazing and will be tons of fun. Um, I'm also working on my first creator-owned book, which hasn't fully been announced yet, but it's creator-owned, so... <laughs> right. Is it going to be an ongoing, or a... It is going to be an OGN, so it's going to be a limited mm-hmm. series, um, but it's going to be a fantastically dark book, mm-hmm. so we're really switching it up. Do you... What, what, what kind of story length do you find is the most... Uh, I mean, do you have a preferred length, or that, that kind of fits your sensibilities the best? I mean, you know, whether an uh, original graphic novel, as you said, or ongoing, or, you know, half-hour animation I mean what, what what's the format that you feel the most comfortable in oh you know I think once you get moving on a format you can do a lot with it um, for example I worked on um, trans I worked on a Transformers Prime Beast Hunters which we did a really unusual format which was a series of two issue arcs mm-hmm. um, and I really liked that but anything over four to six issues I, you at least, I at least want to give that whole right. trade arc so that you can give people as many spots to come into the story as possible. Yeah. Well, uh, very, you know, a lot of good things coming. And I suspect we'll be hearing a lot more from you in the years to come. And there is more to come. Um, I know you have to get to a panel now, so I'm going to let you go. But, uh, Margaret, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to catch up with us. No, thanks so much for having me. No problem.
Welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's podcast about loud Comic-Cons. This is Heidi McDonald. I am live at New York Comic-Con, hoping that it won't suddenly get incredibly loud here because anything could bust loose at any moment. But for the moment, I am talking with uh, Chris Miskevich, uh, writer of Thomas Alsop uh, at the Boom Studios booth. Ironically, the Boom Studios booth is one of the quieter of the ones here on the show floor. Um, now, Chris, uh, you did Thomas Alsop with uh, Pally Schmidt from Boom. Uh, tell us about the book. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, Didn't know where that was going, did you? <laughs> not, not a bit. Uh, Thomas Alsop is a story about the Alsop family. Um, Richard Alsop was cursed in 1699 by the Mesopequin Indians. The other guys used to hang out in New York. Uh, to be the hand of the island, which is pretty much the magical protector of any kind of supernatural hoo-ha that comes through the city. Uh, the first arc... Is, is between a Thomas Alsop, a title character, and Richard, the first hand, and they're both on a case uh, that's 300 years apart, and there's flashbacks between both parts. Wow, cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the modern age. How's that? So, uh, what inspired this story? <laughs> a bunch of things. Honestly, the, the Alsop, uh, I just, in Calvary Cemetery, Queens, there I found I uncovered the Alsop family grave, which is a real. This is a real grave. It's a real place. At Calvary used to be a huge farm, uh, a huge farm collector, and I found the like the, this, this grave from the 1600s. I totally was like, "What am I doing here? What is this?" And I was floored by 1640, 1701, just where I was looking at the Empire State Building from the hill, which is kind of bizarre. That was that. So I researched that area a lot and. The name, I couldn't get out of my head, and I, the next thing I knew, I, just, I had this creepy Dutch figure, you know, in the back of my mind that really needed to come out. And then a David Blaine, something from David Blaine or Chris Angel went by, and I lost my mind, made this connection that nobody should, and gave Thomas a reality show. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> all right, so just ideas from the ether all came together? Together, and you know, I'm a big New York history buff, so it's factually sound, like anything you might come across in this that is a historical point, it's, it's 300% true, but of course littered with things. Yes, well, it's, you know, a little heightened reality is good in our comic books, I find. <laughs> Um, now, uh, I see four issues are out. Uh, is it finished? How many more? No, 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 uh, five are out, actually, but oh, okay. we don't have five here. Yeah. It's shipped before. Um, right. It'll be a full eight-issue series. Uh, the trade will come out next year, and, and we're kind of waiting to hear. I guess if trade sales are good, we're waiting to hear if a second volume gets greenlit or not. Uh, Pally and I have basically scripted this out for five volumes, and, yeah, most of the writing's done. Now, Chris, uh, you have a varied background. You also act. You, you're pretty regularly hanging around the streets of New York uh, uh, in acting uh, guises. Um, and, and uh, you know, I know you've been writing. I mean, you like, like, I don't know, it's interesting to me that you always talk to me about writing. And, you know, writing comics is something that's really... You know, close to your heart, right? I mean, what? How does it fit into your life? I guess. I I've been collecting since I'm ten. You know, my, that's my dad's fault and that, that old Jewish guy shop at Canarsie that I went into. Um, I've always just kind of, I really love this form of fiction. I love the episodic thing. It's probably my grandmother's fault from watching daytime soaps with her when I was a kid. Oh, uh, you know I mean? yeah. Um, I write, I keep saying, I, I, 
a friend of mine's deep into Shakespeare, and we both were saying, like, if Shakespeare were alive, he'd write a blog. If Shakespeare <laughs> were alive, he'd write a web series. It's just the current medium is so vast that you can write fiction in almost any you know, any kind of market right now. I mean, as far as comics go, I write every comic script exactly like a television script. And I, I don't see why people don't. It's the same thing, just the printed shop. Is. So, you know, I do work as an actor. I'm the guy who hands people's folders, number, number 9,000 on the call sheet, things like that. But I'm in that world a lot, and I see the size and the scripts and things that are going through, and there's no difference between the mediums anymore. Some, something like Marvel has realized that, you know, uh, and everybody else has also realized that, and trying to, trying to do the same thing right now, it's, it's the print version of, of the next at this point. Do you feel like, um, <coughs> pardon me, Hollywood, I mean, uh, it seems like, uh, you know, obviously Marvel's the hottest thing going right now, absolutely, so, yeah. and uh, do you think Hollywood is going to turn its eyes more to kind of indie comics, you know, maybe for IP or... I certainly hope so, because we've got a great <laughs> season one TV show here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 there you go, uh, just, you know, hint, hint. But how could, how could you not? Yeah. There's so much IP that you won't ever come across from dudes and ladies who have been thinking about the strangest idea for the better part of their high school and college lives that then finally committed to paper. I mean, I, I don't see how... How does the industry not, like, come over it? I mean, you, right. you, you, oh, you have a six-issue book here. I just read a movie. Yeah. Done. I right. mean, it's... Right. You look at things in certain films, I mean, it's almost... You can almost take the panels as your shot list right. at this point in time. Right. So. At the same time, it's got to be really satisfying to... You know, write something on the page, send it to your artist, and then a month later you have a thing. Whereas opposed to, you know, the, like the time, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I you know, like like making a movie takes years and years and years and years and years. So I mean, there's a lot of it. A lot of I, I do geek out at. I geek out just as hard at his uh, his breakdowns as I do when I finally see the colors. I just I, how do you not geek out when you get the pages back? Right. These guys, it's so much fun. So what are you what are your plans going forward? You know, I mean, this is a nice entree. I mean, it has gotten definitely a lot of good press. The press has been great, and those who have found this series seem to really like it. Uh, we were you know, there's a big 9/11 plot to it, and we were fearful that that might turn people off. Where it's actually done the reverse, which is kind of nice to hear. Um, I'm, you know, I'm avidly pitching several properties now, hoping that, you know, there's something to announce going forward. Palais and I are hopeful there's that a second volume might come into play. Beyond that, we're also developing something else at the moment, uh, just a quick little four-issue series that we're probably going to be showing around the beginning of next year together, you know? Is it, I mean, it's hard, got to be hard to break in as a writer, as we all know. I, I, uh, they're on, they hear it, they're doing it there. All right, you know what, we're going to have to stop here as well. Oh, no, it was a great brief. All right, Chris, we'll wrap, oh, go ahead, go ahead. It is one of the hardest things, I think, to break in as a writer because there's no path to do it at all. There's just no... Anyone who's done it has a different story how they did it. I ended up doing stuff with Activate forever and just web comics and getting my name out there more and more and more. I just... I, I go back to that... I go back to those old 2007 to 9 conversations everybody had of just find your group, make a comic, it'll be terrible, see what you learn, do your thing. You, you kind of did have the hangout until somebody says, come here, guys. Come on in, man. Yeah. You know, you're in yeah. it's, it's totally a scene... And an industry of relationships. Yeah. Proven. 
relationships. Like, that guy can do that. Someone else paid for his idea. There's that validation of packaging. All right, we'll take a peek at it. It's every business. It's not exclusive to this. But as a writer, man, yeah. If you don't have an artist and you're just pitching scripts, it's as hard as probably pitching scripts in any other Right. It just right. probably is. So, Chris, before Marvel gets uh, all fired up here, I have two final questions. One is my bank question that I ask people um, <laughs> What is the first comic you read that blew your mind? Wow, that's a good question. Honestly, you ever read Blood by John Muth? Yeah, I think it's a four issue series. The art in it was so bizarre. Vampires and fantasy. I didn't know what the hell I was reading. I loved it. Wow, that's a new one. I've never heard that one. It's one of my top three favorite books. It's so obscure. Almost no one knows. How old are you? Recommend you get a searing in high school, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 14, 16, somewhere in there, I think, is when I came out. Did you decide you wanted to write comics after that? I don't know if that did it, but I've always kind of wanted to write in this somewhere in the 20s, my early 20s, right in, in college. I'm like, I'm going to try to give this a go, and it's only taken every goddamn day since to, to do <laughs> Well, you got to hang around a long time sometimes. Uh, my final question is, you have a very good cover here by Dean Haspiel, and uh, that that's that's uh, the naked guy. Now, does, is Dean a nudist? That's a good question. He certainly is an exhibitionist. I see, I see. All right. Well, uh, very good here with Chris Miskevich, uh, with Thomas Alsop from Boom Studios. Uh, Thank you very much, Chris. Enjoy the rest of your show sitting across from Marvel Studios. Very loud, loudspeaker. Thank you. Welcome to More to Come. PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. Uh, so, once again, uh, this week we're uh, recording our podcast live uh, from New York Comic Con, the Javits Convention Center, and I have the great uh, pleasure to be here with Dr. Carol Tilly, um, a professor at the University of Illinois, and also, I mean, something of a star in the comics world these days, and she's uh, wrote a paper, Seducing, Seducing the Innocent, Frederick Wortham, and the Falsifications that Help Condemn Comics. Um, really groundbreaking research into really, uh, probably the biggest supervillain in comics. Um, Carol, thank you for uh, being on More to Come. Hey, thank you for having me, Calvin. Um, well, this is a thrill. Obviously, yep. we've known each other yep. for a while. Um, I actually went to the, um, I was at the infamous panel in Soho. <laughs> That's right. Where That's right. Uh, there was, a, it was a, I mean, in many ways, it was a good panel. In many ways, it wasn't such a good panel because there was such a, a rambunctious audience. Um, I, I think uh, a little bit longer situation. and it might have uh, developed into fisticuffs. I, I, I don't think, you, I think you're absolutely right. Fisticuffs could have broken out any time. Uh, but um, but this is a great chance. Well, I just we just come out of your your talk, yes. uh, and I, I'd love to know uh, really just hear, essentially repeat it <laughs> for me and for uh, the listeners of, of more to come. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Frederick Wortham, who okay. the author of uh, Seduction of the Innocent, uh, because he was such a contradictory figure in many ways. I mean, a liberal audience and a liberal dude like myself would actually find him very admirable. Mm-hmm. Except when it comes to uh, <laughs> comics in, in particular. Yeah, it's hard for me to actually hate Wortham, even though I I, I hate what uh, he inspired in the comics industry. Uh, so Wortham was a psychiatrist who was active in the U.S. from the nineteen. 19- 
30s through the late 1970s. And for most of his professional life, he was based here in New York City. Uh, and he's uh, known in part for work with uh, forensic psychiatry, one of the first forensic psychiatrists in the U.S. Um, he worked with Albert Fish, the cannibalistic serial killer in the 1930s. Uh, and in the 1940s, though, Wortham and a group of folks uh, founded the Lafarge Clinic in Harlem, which yeah, was yeah. the mm -hmm. first uh, psychiatric uh, clinic uh, that offered services to people of color uh, anywhere mm -hmm. in the U.S. And uh, he did um, some groundbreaking work, too, uh, that was used in the Brown v. Board of Education uh, ruling uh, to help uh, show the problems of segregation uh, in schooling. Yes, we are literally on the floor of Comic-Con <laughs> here, anyway, as people roll by with uh, carts and such. Anyway, yeah. Yes, go yeah. on. So, um, <laughs> Wortham, though, in the, in the mid-1940s, he started getting interested in comics uh, as, um, as a mechanism uh, that led kids to become juvenile delinquents. And uh, in his work at the Lafarge Clinic and at places like Bellevue and in private practice, he saw a lot of kids who had diagnosed behavioral and emotional disorders and some kids who were delinquents. And, and he sort of famously said, you know, what they all have in common is that they read comics. Um, and well, even that, I know that that, you know, <laughs> that that doesn't mean causality, and right. I don't have a psychiatric right. disease. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, or I say the disease yeah. of degree. In any way, <laughs> you may not have either. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, no, so I mean, the the fact that he figured out that uh, all of his patients read comics really wasn't that revolutionary, because something like ninety five plus yes, percent of kids it. were reading comics. So, uh, it, you know, so good for him for noticing. Um, but he took did, it a step further. <laughs> yeah, so he did what he considered to be clinical research, and he uh, interviewed kids. He worked with them therapeutically, and and he claimed to have come up with this um, uh, bunch of evidence uh, for all of the evils that comics uh, mm. perpetrated in young people's lives. So it would potentially make them juvenile delinquents, but it could also just make them. Um, uh, sort of ethically imbalanced, so they may not uh, be able to thrive uh, as you know mature, functioning adults uh, because of comics reading, uh, or they might grow up to be sex perverts, uh, yeah. which was hmm. another one of his hmm. concerns. If kids like it, it must be bad for them. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, now, now ultimately, he. I mean, did he believe this? I mean, I mean, it seems as though in your research you showed up that he had to make the stuff up. But did he actually believe this? Uh, I mean, how did he... I, I assume he interviewed all the kids. And right. Well, he didn't interview all the kids. That yeah. was one of the problems. So sometimes he made kids up. Um, uh -huh. Sometimes he you know, changed words. I, I do think that he really believed what he was doing, uh, at least in terms of making a difference in kids' lives. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he thought he was helpful, and he believed that he was good-intentioned. Mm -hmm. um, but... Even from the earliest parts of his career, uh, when he was doing some things that were much less controversial, uh, he frequently um, mixed uh, science with polemics, hmm. and he had a reputation of being temperamental, of being a little bit bombastic, um, of being narcissistic, uh, and I think all of that carried over into his 
work with comics. How did the book do? Was it a was it a sensation? Was it a bestseller? Well, it didn't make it on any of the the bestseller list for the year, but within a few months, it had sold more than sixteen thousand copies in the U.S. So mm-hmm. it was pretty respectable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the other things is that uh, he was so prolific that the book was. Um, condensed in Reader's Digest. Mm. He had written stuff for Ladies Home Journal and Good Housekeeping, and he was uh, frequently on the radio. So um, even if his book uh, had not been published or had only sold 100 copies, uh, you still would have encountered him in a lot of different mm. Other media, yeah. yeah. Um, well, after sitting through your talk, yes. uh, I, I'd, I'd love for you to, to talk to uh, our listeners a little bit about the world of comics that existed mm-hmm. uh, prior to, anyway, uh, Seduction of the Innocent. Okay. And then, I guess, uh, what happened after that. Okay. Uh, um, and it's it's really eye-popping in terms of the saturation of the comics right. market uh, as compared to today. Yeah. One of the things I often tell people, and I think it makes it sort of real how big comics were uh, in the 1940s and 50s, uh, at least for, for kids, for young people, uh, is that there was a higher percentage of kids who read comics during the 1940s and 1950s than uh, there are kids today who play video games uh, or who have Facebook accounts. And I think that really speaks to how pervasive and popular they were. Um, by At the peak of their sales uh, in the early 1950s, uh, there were 100 million new comics issues sold every month in the U.S. Um, 100 million copies 100 million. a month sold Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is enough for 30-some copies per, for every person who was alive in the U.S. Uh, so there were lots of comics. Uh, it was something like 95 96% of elementary-age kids and 80 to 85% of high school-age kids who were reading yeah. comics and reading lots of them, reading newspaper comics. And it was a, an incredibly diverse yes. marketplace of comics. In fact, the, the opposite of what we ended up with, indeed, after... Seduction of the Innovus and the Comics Code Authority, which we'll get to. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You could find everything from uh, popular movies being retold in comics mm-hmm. format to uh, funny animal uh, stories like Donald Duck uh, and a whole host of bad imitators, sure. uh, superhero stuff, jungle, western, uh, crime, fantasy, I, almost anything you could imagine, there was a comic that fit with it. I mean, much like today's manga publishing industry is in Japan, there is a, a manga for everyone. Sure. Uh, there was a comic for everyone yeah. in the 40s and 50s. Uh, and uh, and some of them were published by EC, by Bill Gates' yes. um, company, uh, yeah. and some of the most popular ones uh, right. were published by Bill Gaines. Right, so Bill Gaines' uh, EC comics, the, mm. the New Trends titles that were published in the, the early 1950s, were incredibly popular with uh, teen and, and young adult readers. Um, well, they were sensationalist, gory, and fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, some of them, yeah. some of them were really crude and, and sure. stupid, and had a sort of juvenile humor. But yeah. they, they were fun. They didn't, exactly. they didn't talk down to readers. Mm. The art was fantastic. Uh, the stories often had a literary basis, either borrowed from famous works of literature. Or they, you know, sort of famously uh, retold some of Ray Bradbury's early stories, uh, and it. They were just really good comics, and they tried to engage readers, so they were one of the 
the first companies to really reach out and speak to readers directly and encourage uh, lots of reader comment. And mm -hmm. I know that uh, they invited kids into their offices to visit. Yeah. And uh, there was a real fan culture in particular that, that grew up around EC Comics where uh, kids were creating fanzines, were uh, mimicking uh, you know, EC's art and stories in their own self-published comics. Kids were trading ECs, uh, and uh, EC Comics themselves uh, promoted this through newsletters, and mm -hmm. uh, sure. you know allowed kids to advertise things that they had to, to trade. Now, I'm curious: was this was there a this anti comics sort of hysteria? Was it building, and did Wortham sort of latch onto it, or did he indeed spearhead spearhead it? No, Wortham uh, was definitely sort of a, a coat hanger. Uh, a, you know, hung onto the comics, anti-comics uh, bandwagon coattails. That's a lot of mixed metaphors that's in there. Um, <laughs> well, you know, that's but, okay. I know I've done it. <laughs> you know, so at a comic convention, <laughs> everything's over the top. Yes. It's okay. All right. Well, there was, uh, you know, anti-comics sentiment uh, even as early as 1905 or 1906 in the U.S. Mm -hmm. when newspaper comics were first syndicated. And and that subsided, but it, it picked up again uh, around 1940 when comic books were still pretty new. And it, it built in particular after the end of World War II uh, as uh, mm -hmm. titles like the Bill Gaines titles yeah. and other horror and crime comics got to be popular. Uh, but Wortham did seem to latch on. Um, he borrowed uh, others' arguments. Um, and he came onto the scene really in 1948 uh, with his uh, anti-comics spiel. And it didn't change a lot from, say, 1948 to 1954. Uh, it was the same argument, just with different arrays of evidence over time. Um, well, how, where does uh, Carol Tilly step into the picture here. Now, what's your relationship with comics, and how did you come to be to do this research into uh, Frederick Wortham and blow him out of the water, if I may say so? <laughs> well, I come into comics uh, actually uh, as a as a reader, you know, 40 plus years ago growing up. Um, it was something that I did. I, I often tell people I grew up on the same block as a public library in, in my little town, and I went there. Every day it was open except for Saturdays right. when I went Where to the... Where are you from? Uh, southern Indiana, a little uh -huh. town called yeah. Vivi. Okay. Uh, on Saturdays I would go to the drugstore, mm -hmm. uh, and I would, you know, sit down on the floor in front of the comics rack, and I would read comics, and I yeah. would buy some to take home. And when I grew up and became a librarian, I started really thinking about how comics and libraries didn't mix. Um, and this would have been in the early 90s, and you didn't find comics in libraries at that point, at least not much beyond Peanuts or Garfield. Um, and so working as a librarian and then going back to, to work on a dissertation, a PhD, uh, I really started thinking about uh, how did we get to that place. Um, and things have changed in the last yeah. 10 to 15 years, a lot. Absolutely, yes, um, without a doubt. You know, so you can go to More a library. More work to do, but, yes. but absolutely. You can go to a library conference change. now and, and find mm -hmm. comics publishers and panels about comics and comics creators uh, there. And I have spoken many times about the importance of librarians yes. to the landscape that we see today in comics absolutely. where they're available around in stores and schools as well as in libraries. Yeah. So. 
I mean, comics aren't nearly as available as they once were. Uh, yeah. If you don't have a, a comic shop in your town, or if you don't have a, a bookseller uh, in your town that sells comics in some format, uh, it's your library where you're going to find them. Yeah. And uh, that certainly is a, a newer kind of thing. Uh, I went to uh, the Library of Congress a few years ago to look at the Wortham Papers because I was really interested in the correspondence that he claimed to have had with librarians and teachers. Mm -hmm. um, that was really what I was interested uh -huh. in. I didn't care about worth in the person. Uh, this was just a means to learn more about what happened in the 1940s sure. and 50s. Uh, and I didn't find the correspondence with librarians and teachers. Now, there are well, 200 there boxes. There isn't any? <laughs> well, there's not very much. There, uh -huh. you know, there are a few letters, but not yeah. this massive mm -hmm. quantity. Well, could you describe it? How big is the, is his, are his so papers? How big a collection? There are about 200 boxes, mm -hmm. um, and I would hate to guess how many uh, tens of thousands of documents, because mm -hmm. he, he kept everything. The, the comics-related stuff is more about 30 boxes, uh -huh. and, but that's still a lot. Yeah, yeah I can imagine, <laughs> um, yeah. And what I found is that you can sort of see how he composed Seduction of the Innocent by following the materials in the boxes. He kept things uh, in a fairly sequential chapter-based order. You can see his source materials. And it didn't take me very long as I was looking through these boxes to begin to see that um, what was in the source materials wasn't always what was printed in the book. Uh, that there were often these changes, differences, that he put words in kids' mouths, he made things up, he changed the kinds of things they were reading and saying, he left out crucial information, sometimes he made kids up. Um, and, you know, the, the weird thing is, in some ways, he could have made his argument without doing all of this. He had enough other stuff that in many ways was more damning. Mm -hmm. uh, so why he chose to... <laughs> to do this I don't know yeah. um, but he made a lot of stuff up <laughs> yeah uh, it, it, well it's, it's very discouraging since that book uh, that has yeah. ultimately had such a tremendous impact absolutely um, and well, yeah, well you've described the, the comics world sure. prior to Wortham um, uh, <laughs> subsequent to the book uh, we have some. We have the comics code authority right. and may, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. its impact it's so, awful impact uh, <laughs> on this vibrant, bustling, booming, profitable industry. Yeah. So Wortham isn't the only boogeyman. I, he mm. certainly had, in many ways, the loudest voice uh, and the biggest megaphone um, for talking about the negative effects or the purported negative effects of comics. But uh, the Senate also held investigations yes. at the same point that Wortham's book came out. Uh, and comics publishers realized that they needed to make some changes or else they were going to be regulated by yeah. the government. Uh, and so they, they formed the Comics Code Authority, uh, which was a self-censoring uh, yeah. uh, group. Uh, publishers, if they wanted the imprint and they wanted their product on the newsstand, they had to get it approved by the Code Authority. Uh, and uh, in the early years, it was a room of... Um, uh, retired uh, and former teachers and librarians who would look at the artwork and say yes or no and they would look at the stories and say yes or no and until uh, the code stamp was on the page it couldn't collaborators be yeah <laughs> oh. uh, ouch and so you know one of the things that happened uh, as a result of Wortham in the Senate and the comics code is that uh, the publishing industry, collapsed. Um, you, you saw within a couple of years that sales were about half of what they had been, that 
uh, readership was declining. And so by the time I was growing up in the early 70s, I was the exception uh, for the you know, uh, of uh, kids who were reading comics. Uh, there weren't lots of other kids like me. Uh, by the early 90s, uh, it was even more dismal, really, in terms of kids and comics readership. Sure. Yeah. And even now, if you if you look into the readership surveys that DC and Marvel put out, it's looking at something like five percent of their readership is under age 18. Um, so, kids are reading comics now, but they're not reading the superhero mainstream stuff at the same level that they once were. Um, and they're not reading floppy comics uh, like they once did. It's just, it's changed uh, the dynamics. I, I, I mean, it's been my understanding, actually, that it's, I mean, the, the sort of one genre universe that we ended up with uh, in American comics, mm-hmm. the, the basically the superhero genre, pretty much was the result of the Comics Code Authority's um, over restriction on the business because essentially to do anything I mean there was almost nothing you could do that wouldn't violate us other than having a super powerful being that always you know sort of did the right thing yeah I mean the the code uh, as it was initially written uh, it did away with uh, the words horror or crime on the cover of a comic book Uh, it did away with uh, supernatural beings like zombies and werewolves. I mean, you can't. Uh, Robert Kirkman would have no business <laughs> yes, uh, I, yeah, yeah. under the, uh, the first comics code. Uh, you couldn't have kids being disrespectful to adults. Uh, you uh, weren't supposed to show folks who had physical disabilities or physical deformities. Uh, you know, there was a whole host yeah. of just random, in many ways, restrictions uh, that were intended to pacify concerned adults. And it, it made it hard to do anything other than superheroes, absolutely. Certainly not crime and horror and science fiction and some of the really cool genres that had been around. Well, this is great. I want to wrap it up soon, sure. but I would love to hear you talk a little bit about, I mean, one of the things you did in your talk, that, mm-hmm. which I found, which I didn't do nothing about, yeah. where um, some of the kids that actually... Well, I think Gaines, Bill Gaines, actually yeah. asked people to write to Congress. This is nonsense. At least tell them what you think yeah. about comics. Many did, and you were able to find some of these letters and uh, find the letters, yeah. and then find the the uh, the kids now right. adults and professionals uh, who had written them. And I, I and there's some yeah. pretty interesting uh, personalities. No, so around the time of the Senate hearings, uh, Bill Gaines put some editorials in his EC Comics and, and said, you know, Congress. Uh, needs to hear from actual comics readers, and he said, "I don't care whether you disagree, you know, whether you agree with what they are trying to do or disagree, whatever. Just let them know." And about 200 uh, kids wrote in to the Senate in 1954, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, um, I would say so. <laughs> and you know, maybe more, but there are about 200 letters that are still in the National Archives, and uh, I've tracked down um, a couple of dozen uh, of these kids mm-hmm. as adults. Uh, and they tell me that, you know, I'm the first person to have acknowledged their letter, um, that the Senate didn't write back, uh, that they didn't get any kind of response. Uh, but Thanks, Senate, for <laughs> encouraging uh, cit- yeah, you know, no citizen kidding. input. But Absolutely. anyway. <laughs> no, but these, these kids are, are great. I mean, one of the folks I talked to, he's a retired attorney, and he... Uh, looked at this letter he wrote as a 15-year-old and said he couldn't have written a better letter today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he was and he making didn't grow some, up to be a psycho killer. No, either. he didn't. <laughs> uh, one of the kids who wrote, uh, one of my favorite writers, is um, a guy named Phil Proctor. Who, yeah, for sure. some mm-hmm. listeners, um, uh, he's best known as one of the Fire Sign Theater co-founders, mm-hmm. and and he wrote this really passionate letter about um, you know kids don't read comics because they want to be killers or because they want to be delinquents the, the kids read them because the stories are great and the illustrations are great and that they just they speak to kids yeah. uh, he was 13 or 14 when he wrote um, and there were uh, you know other kids who wrote as well sometimes not very eloquently um, there were kids who wrote to Wortham too and mm. the uh, they, uh, one of my favorite letter writers for Wortham is a kid who uh, said if you know if you think reading comics makes us go out and kill people you're a simple minded idiot um, <laughs> more or less yeah well um, and, and my friend Bob Stewart um, who was one of the early EC fanzine creators uh, wrote to Wortham too as a 15 year old uh, wrote a beautiful three page typed letter uh, telling Wortham all of the faults with his arguments. There you um, go. And uh, when I talked to Bob uh, about that a couple of years ago, I mean, he was just—he was frustrated that Wortham had never written back. Yeah. Uh, and he even sent Wortham copies of his fanzines, and that wasn't acknowledged. But um, he was still very proud of that letter he had written. As he should be. Yes. Um, well, th- look, this has really been terrific talking to you. Uh, well, you know where. What does this mean today? I mean, you, you actually ended your talk. I thought I mean, you sort of threw out a little challenge to your profession there. I right. mean, because of, in some ways, I guess their role in this 60 or 70 right. years ago. Um, uh, certainly today, librarians have been key yes. in, in reversing some of this. But we are, we are a long way from the kind of penetration comics had in those days yeah. uh, than what we have now, particularly among kids. Yeah. No, I mean, for me, uh, it's disappointing. As a, as a former librarian, as someone who teaches uh, folks who are going to be librarians, uh, it's really disappointing to me that the American Library Association didn't speak out in the 1940s and 50s as comics were under attack. Uh, I think it's great that we're embracing them now, but we still have this really long legacy and heritage of distrusting uh, popular culture, of... Um, being sort of behind the curve a lot of times when it comes to to new engaging media, especially for young people. Uh, And I think that we need to be cognizant and and be on the lookout for things that maybe we're disparaging or neglecting or or overlooking today. so that's, video games? Yeah, or, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, librarians know, are, you know. are beginning to, to collect uh, video games, but sure. it's still one yeah, of those questionable like, oh, video things. Games, oh, they'll, they'll make yeah, you crazy. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, they'll keep you from being able to read. Yes. Or, it's, you know, it's like everything, you know. Um, well, uh, well, Carol, thank you so much. Hey, thank I you, mean, um, uh, I, I think if you're training the next generation of librarians, <laughs> I don't think we'll have to worry about that so much anymore. Um, so, uh, well, thank you for uh, writing a historic wrong and uh, doing what librarians do, like giving us a straight dose. <laughs> All right. Hey, thank you, Calvin. Thanks for being on board.